BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We have a big show today, but I want to start with crime. Crime is, in many ways, something that the Republicans historically have used to win elections. New York City is a great example of this. If, uh, if you look at the changes that happened after Mayor Dinkins, for example, and all around the country. I mean, this is Richard Nixon's shtick in 1968 was law and order. And I think that crime is just terribly misunderstood in the United States. The, the, the piece I published today over at thehartmanreport.com, um, it tells the story of what happened to Louise and me yesterday. Yesterday, a burglar tried to break into our house. <laughs> you know, we have a, you know, a doorbell that like so many people have, you know, a doorbell that records what's going on. And, uh, you know, this person came up and, and checked out the front of our house. There's a sliding glass door over the next, next to the main door, you know, a little farther down the house and went over and tried to open the sliding glass door, tried to open another sliding glass door. You know, we were lucky. We were still in bed. Uh, this was very early in the morning. We were lucky that, you know, around seven o'clock to six o'clock in the morning. And we were lucky that all our doors were locked. But this person went three houses down from us and, and broke into a neighbor's house and, you know, stole a bunch of stuff and absolutely terrified the neighbor who was home. By the time the police arrived, the burglar was long gone in a stolen car. I have a friend who's trying to sell a condo in downtown Portland. And the problem is that, you know, there are parts of downtown Portland that have basically turned into giant homeless camps where there's tents everywhere. There is a lot of crime associated with that. And you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's killing property value, shall we say, but it's also creating concern. I think it's really important that we understand what is causing this kind of crime and also what is causing the violent crime that we're seeing an uptick in. I mean, you know, we had a, a mass shooting in Portland the day before yesterday, in fact. And it's gotten so bad that, by the way, I mean, the police are like just now largely ignoring an awful lot of crime or not able to deal with it. Part of that, of course, has to do with the fact that in a lot of cities, police forces have uh, dropped in their numbers by 10 to 20 percent. I don't know if that's I, I know that that's nor not normal attrition. We don't know what percentage of that has to do with people having long covid, which is a problem across the country, but particularly with first responders, you know, who were basically forced into confronting the virus before they were vaccinated. 
or what percentage of it is the the bad apples in quotes in police departments but you know i had speculated based on my experience going through the georgia police academy that maybe as many as a third of police officers were you know really enjoyed beating people up and were on power trips that's what i personally experienced hanging out with the guys who were working to become police officers but let's say it's 10 or 20 percent those may well be the people who are leaving police forces now because uh, after the George Floyd thing and after Chauvin getting convicted, they're like, oh, well, you know, can't do that anymore. Let's, let's find another job. I don't know. Uh, maybe you do. And if you do, give me a call. But, but the point is that we've got this, uh, quote, crisis, and I guarantee you it is going to be highly politicized going into 2022. And the Republicans are going to be repeating every Democrat who ever said defund the police and doing so largely out of context because nobody is saying stop having community interventions. I mean, even the defund the police movement was really about, you know, as Seattle has done and as, as Portland, I believe, is in the process of doing yeah, and, and other cities as well is, you know, there are times when it's better to send somebody other than an armed police officer to a situation. But you know, that's kind of a side conversation. In fact, probably one that we can deal with after the break. But what I wanted to point out is that what causes society to come unraveled, and crime is a symptom of that, uh, particularly property crime, which you could argue is a form of violence, a violent crime as well. But what causes society to become unraveled isn't what we think it is. We have this mythology, this story in our culture that crime always accompanies poverty. And there is, of course, a, a, a measurable association between low levels of crime and poverty, but it's almost entirely contained within the poor communities. And crime, you know, I've worked in places where there were genuinely poor people. I worked in a famine literally, uh, you know, hundreds of people dying a day around me in Uganda in 1980 after the war with Idi Amin. I worked in a massive slum in Colombia in uh, Bogota. You know, I worked in the Klongtoy slum briefly with Bernie Cooper and Dwang Pratip with the Grand Dwang Pratip Foundation. They were trying to build sidewalks that were not flammable because the giant Japanese corporation that owned the swamp that the slum was built over kept trying to burn them out because the local laws said you can't take back over your property unless there's no people on it. You know, I've seen deep poverty. I was in the Philippines with uh, this guy, Father Ben Carrion. He's now passed away, but he used to write a column for the Manila Times called Joke Only, using humor to make social points. A very progressive priest. And uh, he took me to one of the largest garbage dumps in Manila. And he, I mean, literally, it's like miles of giant piles of garbage, and the stench was horrible, and flies and everything. And he said, now look at that, look at that pile over there. And it was like, you know, a quarter mile away. Look at that pile, what do you see? And I stared at it for a minute, and I said, oh my God, it's moving. And he said, yes, those are children. There's children all over that garbage collecting food for their families and things that they can sell. You know, so I, I've seen all these things, and, and I've hung out with people living in these very dire situations as well as when I was much younger, among very poor people in the United States. And what you find is that a certain level of poverty actually consolidates community. People, people come together in a way, you know, when, when thieves, uh, particularly I remember in the barrio in, in Bogota, 
there was one guy who was stealing from other people and the community got together and just went in and just read him the riot act and, and beat him up. And he stopped stealing from people. So what is it, if it's not poverty that causes crime, what is it? Well, it turns out it's inequality. And inequality causes crime because it literally makes us crazy. We are wired for fairness. If you don't believe this, walk into a preschool class with a couple of dozen three-year-olds and give one of them a big pile of cookies and give just one cookie to all the other kids and watch what happens. There will be an explosion. We are wired for fairness. And it's not just humans. This is a mammalian thing. You can do this, you can do the exact same experiment with rats. You can do it with dogs. You can do it with, with uh, great apes. I mean, right across the mammalian kingdom, we are wired for fairness. So this is one of the reasons why in, in uh, pre-literate societies around the world, and there are still many of them, the, uh, what, the, what the Northwest Native Americans call the potlatch, which is you know, a big festival where everybody gets together, and the way that you gain social status is by giving away the most you can. Fairness, equality. Now, I'm not suggesting, you know, as Karl Marx did, that everybody should be stripped of all riches and the state should decide who gets what and start distributing things equally. I'm, I'm not even close to going there, of, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. You know, eh, it was a nice saying. It didn't work out. But what I am saying is that we have become the most unequal society in the world or at least in the developed world. We hit, about four years ago, we hit levels of inequality in the United States that were equal to what we saw in 1929 that precipitated the Republican Great, Great Depression. And there is such a pile of research on this showing that it is inequality that causes crime, more so than poverty. Yes, poverty will cause crime. But inequality is the big driver because it breaks down social trust. Social trust is the essential piece that keeps a society together, that keeps the fabric of a society together. You feel safe walking down a street because of social trust. You feel unsafe walking down a street because of a lack of social trust. And what destroys social trust? Inequality and conspicuous consumption. One of the studies that I cite in the piece over at HartmanReport.com today is specifically about the perception of inequality. When there is conspicuous consumption, people stop behaving in a social way, people who are not among the consuming class. And what did we see today? A giant penis taking off from Texas, going into the sky, you know, another Amazon penis. Billionaires in space sitting around going, oh yeah, we're billionaires, we can go into space, so maybe someday you can too. <laughs> Does this help us? Or is this our problem? I'm saying it's our problem and it's time to essentially tax the rich. You've got Jeff Bezos. In 2011, if you paid $5 in income taxes, you paid more income taxes than Jeff Bezos, the guy who just launched himself into space. Is that fair? Well, of course it's not, and everybody knows it. And when people get that society is massively unfair, that's the point at which they say, you know, screw the rules. I'm gonna go out and get what I want. I'm gonna steal from somebody. 
This is the Tom Hartman Program. And I'm guessing that an awful lot of this crime is never even reported to the police and is not showing up in the statistics. Are you noticing the same situation in your community? There was, this is, this is so funny. Nate noticed this this morning on a website that he was visiting. Two headlines side by side, right? Two absolutely side by side headlines. And I think that this demonstrates the irony of the moment that we're in. The one headline is Biden calls Cuba a failed state and communism a failed system. Okay, well, you know, as a consequence of our embargo, certainly Cuba is in a crisis right now. And, and you know, we can, we can have opinions about the communist government in Cuba and, you know, all those kind of things. But, but anyhow, so that stands. Biden calls Cuba a failed state and communism a failed system. The headline right next to it is girl seven, seven years old, sells lemonade to pay for her own brain surgery. Seriously, this is where we're at? This is where we're at? It's amazing. Alfredo in Mountain View, California. Hey, Alfredo, what's up? Hey, hi, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. I just have a quick question pertaining H.R. 1, the Voting Rights Bill. Do you know if there's any language in the bill that criminalizes suppression of the vote the way they are doing in all of these states? And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you, Tom. You know, I don't know if the bill specifically criminalizes suppressing the vote what a uh, although i suppose no because it 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 basically it says federal law supersedes state law the state law can't be enforced if it does this or this or this and you know which is very much like what the voting rights act said and you know arguably then you know with that law in place if some state tried to say okay count the jelly beans in the jar or you know whatever little uh, game they're going to play you know this week uh, there could be criminal penalties, but, you know, I'm not sure. Anyhow. Tom Harbin here with you. So I wanted to segue as a, you know, the old radio word, from inequality, which is, you know, solving inequality is not something that's going to happen next week, right? If, if Jeff Bezos went from paying 1% income tax to paying 40% income tax tomorrow, and the Walton family started paying, you know, any little bit of income tax, and, and uh, you know, the, on and on, right? The, if, if the billionaires among us started paying their, their fair share of taxes, which they are not. I mean, you know, we've got the study from ProPublica. The average uh, across the, the, the billionaires that they studied was between 1% and 3% that they're paying in federal income taxes. And if we were to ins- ins- institute uh, Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, that is a long-term solution. It took us 40 years to get here, from Reagan dropping the top tax rate of 74% on individuals and 50% on corporations down to 25% on both. It took us 40 years to get from that through the dynasty, you know, uh, uh, changes in the, in the 1980s where TV stopped showing normal people like Lucille Ball 
and Jackie Gleason in their in their inexpensive apartments and started showing rich people and big mansions and now everybody looks like they live rich and and we saw this explosion of wealth uh, you know not just among the top one one thousandth of a percent which is where it's most obscene but right across the board across largely the top one percent um, that took four decades it took 40 years to reach the point where we are the most unequal society uh, advanced developed society on earth and, and the one that's closest behind us, and then there's this huge gap between us and everybody else, the one that's closest behind us is Maggie Thatcher's England, because Maggie Thatcher did to the UK the same thing Ronald Reagan did to the United States. But that's the long-term strategy. My question for you is the short-term strategy. It seems to me that we need to do a couple of things with regard to policing. The, the top one on my list is bringing back community policing getting cops out of cars and on the streets, walking around and not looking like they are, you know, Nazi stormtroopers, but looking like average people, like we used to see on TV, you know, like on Cagney and Lacey or on Adam One, uh, you know, I mean, it, uh, McMillan and wife. Go back and look at the cop shows from the 70s and 80s. Normal people policing in normal neighborhoods. But I want to crowdsource these solutions. Should we outlaw homelessness? Do we do health care, housing, food and education? What, what are your thoughts on how we solve this problem? Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Our book today is Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World by Anand Giridardas. This is from the prologue. All around us in America is the clank, clank, clank of the new in our companies and economy, our neighborhoods and schools, our technologies and social fabric. But these novelties have failed to translate into broadly shared progress and the betterment of our overall civilization. 
American scientists make the most important discoveries in medicine and genetics and publish more biomedical research than those of any other country. But the average American's health remains worse and slower improving than that appears in other rich countries. And in certain years, life expectancy actually declines. American inventors create astonishing new ways to learn thanks to the power of video and the Internet, many of them free of charge. But the average 12th grader tests more poorly in reading today than in 1992. The country has had a culinary renaissance, as one publication put it, one farmer's market and Whole Foods at a time, but it has failed to improve the nutrition of most people, with the incidence of obesity and related conditions rising over time. The tools for becoming an entrepreneur appear to be more accessible than ever for the student who learns coding online or the Uber driver, but the share of young people who own a business has fallen by two-thirds since the 1980s. America has birthed the wildly successful online book superstore called Amazon, and another com company, Google, has scanned more than 25 million books for public use, but illiteracy has remained stubbornly in place, and the fraction of Americans who read at least one work of literature a year has dropped by almost a quarter in recent decades. The government has more data at its disposal and more ways of talking and listening to citizens, but only one quarter as many people find it trustworthy as in the tempestuous 1960s. A successful society is a progress machine. It takes in the raw material innovation and produces broad human advancement. America's machine is broken. When the fruits of change have fallen on the United States in recent decades, the very fortunate have basketed almost all of them. For instance, the average pre-tax income of the top tenth of Americans has doubled since 1980. That of the top 1% has more than tripled. And that of the top 0.001% has risen more than sevenfold, even as the average pre-tax income of the bottom half of Americans has stayed almost precisely the same. These familiar figures amount to three and a half decades worth of wondrous head-spinning change with zero impact on the average pay of 117 million Americans. Meanwhile, the opportunity to get ahead has been transformed from a shared reality to a prerequisite of already being ahead. Among Americans born in 1940, those raised at the top of the middle class and the bottom of the lower middle class shared a roughly 90% chance of realizing the so-called American dream of ending up better off than their parents. Among Americans born in 1984 and maturing into adulthood today, the new reality is split screen. Those raised near the top of the income ladder now have a 70% chance of realizing the dream. Meanwhile, those close to the bottom, more in need of elevation, have a 35% chance of climbing above their parents' station. And it's not only progress and money that the fortunate monopolize. Rich American men, who tend to live longer than the average citizens of any other country, now live 15 years longer than poor American men, who endure only as long as men in Sudan and Pakistan. Thus, many millions of Americans on the left and right feel one thing in common, that the game is rigged against people like them. Perhaps this is why we hear constant condemnation of the system, for it is the system that people expect to turn fortuitous developments into societal progress. Instead, that system in America and around the world has been organized to siphon the gains from innovation upward, such that the fortunes of the world's billionaires now grow at more than double the pace of everyone else's, and the top 10% of humanity have come to hold 90% of the planet's wealth. It's no wonder that the American voting public, like other publics around the world, has turned more resentful and suspicious in recent years, 
embracing populist movements on the left and the right, bringing socialism and nationalism into the center of political life in a way that once seemed unthinkable, and succumbing to all manner of conspiracy theories and fake news. There is a spreading recognition on both sides of the ideological divide that the system is broken and has to change. Some elites faced with this kind of gathering anger have hidden behind walls and gates on landed estates, emerging only to try to seize even greater political power to protect themselves against the mob. But in recent years, a great many fortunate people have also tried something else, something both laughable and self-serving. They've tried to help by taking ownership of the problem. All around us, the winners in our highly inequitable status quo declare themselves partisans of change. They know the problem, and they want to be part of the solution. Actually, they want to lead the search for solutions. They believe that their solutions deserve to be at the forefront of social change. They may join or support movements initiated by ordinary people looking to fix aspects of our society, but more often these elites start initiatives of their own, taking on social change as though it were just another stock in their portfolio or another corporation to restructure. The book, Winners Take All, by Anand Giridharis. So just to, just, to, just to kind of put a punctuation mark on my last rant, and then I will pick up your phone calls in just a moment. Uh, but I, I just want to amplify the, 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 the points that I was making very slightly. Number one, I see that we, so we have this long-term problem of inequality that Republican policies have created and we're going to have to reverse to solve. But that's going to, you're going to start seeing the solutions to that come out over a decade or two decades. But what do we do right now? Uh, just in my, just in my little circle of family and friends, um, I, you know, uh, one, of, <laughs> one of my family members has had two vehicles stolen. Another one of my family members has had a vehicle broken into. One of the people I work with has had a, a smash and grab vehicle broken into. Um, the vast majority of these, uh, and, 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 and I've had my house, you know, attempted uh, to be burglarized. And this is all just in the last year. Uh, and, and, and I'm guessing that nine out of ten of these kinds of crimes are just never reported to the police. So what do we do? It seems to me that, number one, we need more community policing. I mentioned that before the break. We need to get cops out into communities, and we need them to be members of the community and to look like the community rather than to be an occupying force of mutant ninja turtles. And this means reversing the whole hyper-militarization of the police to a large extent. I get it that, you know, there are going to be times when you need SWAT teams, you need heavily armed people when you're, when you're going into gang, you know, wars and stuff. I get all that. But, you know, not for everything. Uh, number one. Number two, we need to do something about homelessness in the United States. Finland just made homelessness essentially illegal. And it doesn't mean that they made homeless people illegal. They made any government policy that promotes homelessness illegal. And, they, and their solution was to give homes to homeless people. And they are building uh, low, you know, low cost housing for people or no cost housing for people. And they are putting up homeless people in, in vacant properties that they are acquiring. 
And Finland is like just a whisker away from ending homelessness in that country. We could do that here. Though, you know, talk to somebody who's old enough to remember the 60s, 70s, and the 80s before, before Reagan shut down the mental hospitals and before we started seeing this and, and before, you know, the working class got gutted by Reaganism and the loss of unions. We did not have a homeless problem in the United States. Certainly there were, there were some people who were, who were not living in a house, you know, who, kind of like the old hobos from the 30s, but, but it wasn't anything like today. So let's outlaw homelessness. And let's just establish a baseline. This is the, the, the simple baseline that has been established by every other developed country in the world is that healthcare is a right and therefore everybody has it at no cost when they can't afford it. Housing is a right and therefore everybody has it even if it has to be at no cost because they can't afford it. Food is a right and therefore everybody has it even if they can't afford it. And education is a right and everybody has access to education even if they can't afford it. Again, this is not Marxism or communism. This is creating a social floor in these four central areas that in addition to more rational policing, I believe will solve this problem. But what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Anyhow, uh, Bill in Sierra Blanca, Texas. Hey, Bill, what's up? Hi, Tom. Yes, um, what you were saying about inequality causing crime really resonated with me. In fact, I got a little emotional. Um, and also, real quick, uh, I live about 30 miles from Van Horn, Texas. That's where Bezos blasted off from the billionaire in space huh. today. But yeah. anyway, anyway, I watched that. But anyway, I'm not, I'm not proud of it, Tom. But in the past. I used to, uh, when I was struggling, I was on even food stamps for a while, and uh, I'm not proud of it, but I literally stole thousands of dollars of food from big box stores and high-end food stores, and uh, I'd buy stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and but I'd also steal a lot. It, over time, I'm sure it was many thousands of dollars. And later, you know, that's not how I was raised. My mom, you know, my dad was a border patrolman. My mom was a teacher, and I wasn't—I wasn't raised like that. But I, my wife at the time asked my sister-in-law, who was a psychologist practicing in California, San Francisco, and she said, "Well, I think he feels like people owe him something." <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, and and you know, I never would steal like from regular people. It was always from like a Walmart or a big box store, someone I felt that was taking advantage. So I just wanted to share that because it really resonated with me and what you were saying. So so would it be fair to say, Bill, that you felt that the massive inequality you were seeing around you uh, meant that, uh, you know, it was it was more legitimate to, to basically steal from the rich? Yeah, I think so, because, you know, I wasn't going to name names, but one of them was Walmart. Yeah. and their sister uh, store Sam's and and you know I had friends working there and they were they were making like at the time like $8 an hour yeah. you know yeah. and and then I would read that these people in in 
arc and you know and the, the owners of the Waltons are, are multi-billionaires. Oh, the richest you know? family in America. They're worth over a hundred billion dollars. Yeah, so, so I th I'm sure that was a part of it. You know, I felt like yeah. they owe us something, and and, it, and of course, in retrospect, stealing is stealing. It's a crime. It's wrong. But I completely understand now that. Yeah. What you're saying, Tom, inequality yeah. does cause crime. And, and if you look at the French Revolution, you know, everybody talks about Les Mis. You know, uh, there were literally famines in France, uh, which, I, in my opinion, justifies stealing food. But uh, I don't think the, the French Revolution came about because of the famines. I think it came about because, uh, you know, uh, if, I mean, look at p pictures of the, of the Palace of Versailles, you know, uh, where Louis XVI was living. Um, the, the, the opulence, the conspicuous consumption among the, the French aristocracy was just mind-boggling. And I, I, and I think that, that I think it also leads, it doesn't just lead to crime, I think it also leads to revolution, which is, which is a very, very dangerous state. And, and again, you know, you look at these people who are hardcore Trump followers, and many of them are following him in, in, in part because they believe that you know, his old campaign promises that he was going to tax the rich and distribute wealth to average people or to poor people. Mm -hmm. And and I think that there's a sense of that there, too. Bill, thank you for the call. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? Hello. I, uh, I, I just briefly, Bill's call was uh, very profound to me. And uh, one of the things he said is stealing is stealing which is really strange, and I've spent half a century trying to figure out how certain people in the United States bifurcate or rationalize things. Do they think about the things they say? Because if stealing is stealing, then we've got a big problem because we live in a nation that was stolen from other people, and we still steal from Africa, which has most of the Earth's, planet Earth's natural resources. So. I really want to put that in there, and that kind of is a segue. You used that word earlier. I like that word. Uh, and uh, into what you're talking about, about uh, inequality, to me, and I say this with due respect to all, it's a, it's a specious and really white supremacist concept in a way. And I mean in a way. And, and that's why, and what I mean by that is, who am I wanting to be equal to? as a black man. Who am I wanting to be equal to? Well, of course, the inference is, and the reality is, not just an inference, is a white man. Okay, do I want to be equal in terms of uh, wearing uh, pajamas with a pillowcase on my head and burning crosses? How, you see, this is, this is very complex. I think we're talking about so, different things, Kenyatta, respectfully. Um, if, if you look at, uh, over at equalitytrust.com, co.uk you can see all these charts where they show it's called the Gini coefficient the the ratio between the very very rich and everybody else and as that Gini coefficient goes up as inequality goes up crime goes up mental illness goes up um, violent crime goes up teenage pregnancy goes up drug abuse goes up all of these social ills and they're all being caused by social trust being unraveled by by the perception of massive wealth in the midst of people who don't have access to even what they basically need. That's what I'm talking about. I don't about. disagree with, I, I'm very familiar with criminal, criminalistics, and, and yeah. I don't disagree with you at all. I'm simply saying that, again, you, 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 you know, we have to look at not just the what, but the why. It's a deeper mm -hmm. issue than that. You take homelessness. 
It's a complicated issue, Tom. There are people that are homeless that are homeless because, you know, they have burned every family member. They've stolen from family members. They have drug problems. They don't want help. I live in an area of Southern California where the homeless problem, homelessness problem is just, it's unreal. Yeah, it is here. And, so it, too. and sometimes these people can be uh, violent. Uh, what do you do? Two years ago, I got a phone call that my only really living relative that I had any familiarity with had died. And she was in her 40s, and she died in, uh, she had been in a homeless shelter in Orange County, California. Ouch. And she finally got up, she finally got an apartment. She had outreach, and she, was, she wasn't a drug addict, none of those things, but she suffered from depression and alcoholism. And uh, she had gotten into this apartment. She had waited a year and a half. She lived on the streets because the homeless shelters were so dangerous. Women were raped. They were full of. So it, this again, this is complicated because mm-hmm. we get down to the val- the values of the society. Where are we putting money? Why do we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on military armament and drones and things when we could put that money in our schools? We could put that money to deal with people why ever they're homeless. Uh, whether it be drugs or mental incapacity or just lost their job at GM. But that's not happening, Tom. That's yeah. what I'm saying. No, you're singing so my song, Kenyatta. You're absolutely singing my yeah. song. And and just, I mean, just two weeks ago, my, my wife, Louise, was on a walk and a, and a homeless guy assaulted her. You know, I mean, he, he, he threw a water bottle yeah. at her and tried to chase her down the street. And, and uh, somebody else uh, intervened. A, a person in a home nearby came, came out and started yelling at him. He turned around and ran away. Well, he was a very, very large guy. And uh, uh, it scared the crap out of her. And sure this, and this is, this is mental illness that should, that right. as a society, we used to deal with. And and, uh, well, and deal and the, with and and we need to be dealing with in a, in an appropriate way. I mean, we didn't used to deal with it perfectly. Obviously, it was a terrible system right. in many regards, and it was a very racist system. And I acknowledge all that. But but you know wh- what we've decided to do since Reagan basically stopped in you know any any viable government funded option for mentally ill people who were homeless is that we've just said, oh yeah, they're you know they're crazy. Just let them live in the tent over there. You know, I, oh, I absolutely, Tom. You are you are so right. And you know what? Along with that, you can. When Reagan came in, think about college tuition. I was right at the cusp of that. I got a basic educational opportunity grant. Worked uh, part time, played in bands, and guess what? I paid my way through college with no college loans. You're absolutely there right. You the things are tied. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's all one thing in my mind. Kenyatta, thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you. And I love reading reading your stuff over at Op-Ed News. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. How do we solve the, quote, crime problem in America? Leslie in Alhambra, California. Hey, Leslie, what's up? Hey, I just wanted to point out that if you're on the bottom, the truth is crime does pay. If you look at what's happened in our society like the Trump uh, uh, family did with um, their uh, university, he took in $52 million. He only paid twenty-four million uh, out. Uh, he, no penalty for him. Right. If you look at what happened with the opioid crisis, those people made billions of dollars and only paid a fraction back. Yeah, the Sackler so family. Does pay. Yeah. Time, crime does pay if you're in the white-collar uh, area. 
And the, and the penalties are minimal. And they go after, well, as in the case of the Sacklers, uh, you know, the, the, the most deadly drug dealers in the history of the United States, no member of that family is being held personally accountable in any criminal way whatsoever. The company is pleading guilty to several criminal charges. But, you know, you can't put a company in jail. <laughs> in fact, the company's, you know, in bankruptcy right now to avoid having to having to cover the cost. Yeah, I, you know, very well said, Leslie. Thank you. Scott in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Scott, what's on what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say how much I enjoy uh, Professor Wolf every every week. He's he's great. But most ninety five percent of the people in the country do not understand how rich rich people are. If you take Jeff Bezos. They've estimated that his worth is worth two billion, two hundred billion dollars, and most investment counselors will say that if you take four percent uh, uh, of your investment every year, you'll your investment will or your investment account will continue to grow. I'm a little more conservative with that, so I I figure three percent. If Jeff Bezos gets three percent of his two hundred billion dollars a year. He gets $6 billion a year. Every two months, he, gets an, he becomes another billionaire. If he could clone himself every, six times a year, he could make himself another billionaire every, every two months. Right, and it's almost impossible to spend a billion dollars a year. I yeah. mean, you, you have to do things like build rocket ships and blast yourself into right. outer space. The most expensive, I went on the internet and I found uh, the most expensive yacht that I could find on the internet was $300 million. He could buy 20 of those a year and not touch his, his investment. Yeah. And that's the same. I mean, it's crazy. It is. And, and now we get this report that, uh, you know, in fact, I, I got it uh, this morning from uh, one of these inequality groups, I, uh, I don't recall which one, um, uh, saying that if you paid $5 in income taxes in 2014, I believe it was, maybe 2011, you paid more income taxes than Jeff Bezos, you know, the guy oh, yeah. who just blasted himself into outer space right. and that the media is like, oh, look at this billionaire, isn't he cool? You know, and, and I'm looking at it, you know, just it's like, Really? I mean, you know, Amazon is a reasonably good company in some ways, and they've they've certainly have been a useful thing for many Americans during the during the uh, pandemic. But uh, their their labor practices are just. Uh, you know, but he he wouldn't show. be hurt one iota if he had to pay taxes. He wouldn't be hurt one iota if he if he if he let his employees get unionized either. I mean, you know, it's 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 uh, it's incredible. Scott, thank you, thank you. Uh, ten minutes before the hour, back in just a moment. It's the Tom Hartman program, the place where despair is not an option. We'll be right Ruth in West Los Angeles, listening on KPFK. Hey, Ruth, what's up? Hi, Tom. First of all, I always love it when you rant on Reagan because he was so awful, and it's really great when you enumerate all the ways. But exactly. anyway. What I wanted to say is that you are absolutely right about kids realizing inequality. And my personal story is that I grew up in Alabama, and I had the good fortune of living in a home. And right next door to me was a tenement house. 
And there was my playmate, who was a five-year-old girl. I think that their rooming house, they probably had two rooms, possibly three. Both her parents were deaf and mute, and she was sign-languaging them as a five-year-old. And this had a a profound effect on me. I was like, you know, I realized as a five-year-old that it wasn't fair that my life was not, you know, difficult like her life was. And it and also, you know, I saw a lot of poverty amongst African-Americans, you know, shacks with roosters running around. And those were all mixed in, you know, with uh, regular houses, et cetera. So it had a profound effect on me. I, I became really literally a civil rights worker at the age of five. I mean, it politicized me at that age, you know, and I kept asking my mother, why are there two drinking drinking fountains in the park? Why are there two waiting rooms at the railroad station? The bottom line is it had a profound effect when I was in college and I took genetics. uh, There was a paper out that was um, in the Harvard Educational Review by a man named Arthur Jensen, which purported to show why blacks were mentally inferior to whites. And I decided that was going to be my genetics project. And I read the whole thing. It was a big, thick, you know, it took up the whole journal. And it was full of holes. Mm. And it was really easy to shoot it down. But, you know, that what I'm saying is that it came to me that I needed to do my genetics paper on that. I'm yeah. just saying from a it's, five-year-old to It seems, Ruth, transport. that some people, if I, if I can just interject real quick, sure. that some of us, when we perceive inequality, say, we've got to fix this. Others of us, when we perceive inequality, say, this system is totally screwed up. I have no, no use for it anymore. I'm going to become a criminal. And I think the thing that distinguishes between the two is that those of us who say, I want to fix it, are the people who feel that they have some agency. And the people who say, I'm going to become a criminal, are the, are the people who feel that they have lost all agency. Now, that's just speculation on my part, um, you know, but the sense of powerlessness versus a sense of capability to do something, I think that's important. That, that, is, that is really true. And the birth accident of having the capability to Well, do that's it. what brings it about. I mean, you know, what I'm, what I'm talking about here in part is white privilege, although it's really class privilege as much as anything else. I mean, most of the crime here in Portland is being committed by white people. Um, so it's not, it's not a race issue. It's a class issue. But, Ruth, i got to run. Thank you very much for the call, and thank you for your story. That was a great one. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. 
Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Tom Hartman University Book Club reading today from Screw, the Undeclared War Against the Middle Class and What We Can Do About It. This is from uh, one of the last chapters, Chapter 13. It's titled Setting the Rules of the Game in the subchapter Gaming the System. If government can create conditions that cause a middle class to emerge by implementing fair rules for business, progressive taxation, free public education, the opposite is also true. Government can create a corporatocracy by deregulating business, by cutting taxes on extreme wealth, and by privatizing as much of the commons as possible. Conservatives call this starving the beast. Here's how you starve the beast. You put through tax cuts for the rich, which cuts back the revenues of the federal government to the point that if you got rid of all the social programs, you'd have a balanced budget. No more Social Security, no more spending for education, no more spending for Medicare and Medicaid. Let the government simply keep the armies, prisons, and police. Let's shrink government. That's their philosophy. When you cut all those social programs, you lose the middle class and in its place create a very small wealthy elite and a large underclass of starvation wage workers. You lose democracy and instead create corporatocracy. You change the rules of the game. We the people lose and the feudal lords win. Cons have been winning this particular game of Starve the Beast since Reagan first started seriously playing it in 1981. They've done it in large part by lying to the American people. And they've had to do that because if they told the truth, the majority of Americans would throw them out of office. This is, after all, still a democracy. If the majority of us agree to get rid of Social Security so that only the wealthy can have retirement benefits and the older left to fend for themselves, so be it. If a guy breaks his neck and can't work and the majority of us decide not to help people who are disabled and as a result he has to beg on the street, well, we can democratically decide, decide to screw him and ourselves. But the conservatives are not having this debate in an open and honest fashion. They're not asking we the people if we want to get rid of, for example, the Head Start program. They could ask, do we want to invest in our youth or not? We know that if we invest in educating the very young, fewer of them will become criminals. It will save us money over the long term. But the majority of us say, no, we would rather pay $50,000 to imprison them later than pay $300 to put them in a head start. Now, if we said that, then that's fine. It's a democracy. But that's not the way the cons are doing it. Instead of explaining why it would be better for Americans to give all their money to the corporate elite, they're giving huge tax cuts to the rich while pretending that the tax cuts benefit all Americans. Instead of arguing that Americans should not expect the right to health care or security in their old age, they are promoting a government crisis by handing to the rich the money we're borrowing from China, Japan, and Korea in the name of our grandkids. They're borrowing so much money from these countries that if they so much as blink, our currency could crash. And that's just what the most ideological of the conservative elite want. They want an economic crisis because they figure that's the only way they can force a cut in spending on social programs. In 2004, they thought that they had starved the beast enough, and they sent Bush out on the campaign trail to advocate getting rid of Social Security, privatizing it, putting it in the hands of Wall Street. But it didn't work. Turns out we the people apparently like Social Security. So the cons went back to starving the beast. Bush instead passed a new series of tax cuts with more to follow. 
The cons are trying to play the game so that the rich benefit while the rest of us lose out. They get tax cuts, we get program cuts. That's not a free market. That's a market that's being created for the benefit of the rich at the expense of the middle class. The question Americans have faced since the first arguments between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton in the 1780s was whether the game of business should be played with the primary goal of enriching the few or, while allowing the few to enrich themselves, enhancing the quality of the life of the many. The cons suggest that if the rich win first, benefits will trickle down to the rest of us. Protecting workers, they say, will produce abnormalities and dislocations from a so-called free market. For example, they suggest that when minimum wages are fixed by government and labor can lawfully bargain to increase wages by increasing scarcity of labor through union actions, the result is an increase in prices, ultimately hurting the working person. But the economists they often cite in this thinking, David Ricardo, disagreed that raising wages first increased prices. He noted, quote, on the contrary, a rise of wages from the circumstance of the laborer being more liberally rewarded or from a difficulty of procuring the necessities on which wages are expended does not, except in some instances, produce the effect of raising price, but has a great effect in lowering profits, end of quote. In other words, all that talk about keeping wages down to keep prices down is a smokescreen. Business owners want to keep wages down to keep profits up. And when wages go down, profits do indeed go up. American wages have been falling steadily since Reagan first reintroduced conservative economics in 1980. And American corporations are generally more profitable than they've been in decades. In part, this is not only because wages are going down within the United States, but also because U.S.-level wages are being replaced by India and China-level wages through offshoring and outsourcing. But offshoring isn't a problem for American workers, the cons shout. It's the increase in productivity. American businesses need fewer workers because of automation. This is a tragic lie, and it's been bought hook, line, and sinker by most American politicians and even some economists. The book is screwed. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and David in North Miami Beach, Florida. Hey, David, what's up? Hey, Professor. Hey, y'all. Yes. Um, thanks for the book, uh, Crash of 2016. And one of the solutions to crime is try to replace private security with a lot of police aides to actually walk the streets instead of guarding a few expensive condos. Yeah, well, that's my that's my that's my point about community policing. Community policing is where the police get out of their cars and they and they get into their communities. But you you put your finger on it, David, and did a great job of it. Thank you, Mary in Seattle. Hey, Mary, your thoughts? Hey, thank you. Uh, yeah, Mary in Seattle, an older white woman. This is Duwamish and Coast Salish land that I'm on, and I'm just grateful for the discussion of inequity and our longing for fairness and without which we have gone crazy in so many ways. And I also appreciate earlier caller Kenyatta, I think, bringing in white supremacy, bringing in addiction and mental health into the mix. I wanted to put forward something that's growing in local jurisdictions, school districts and local governments, and that is restorative justice practices. And you probably covered this before, Tom, but it a really important community-based, community-owned form of conflict resolution and, and crime prevention, in addition to your suggestion of community policing. I think it's 
mm-hmm. as any reform of policing. And there's lots of lots of examples of restorative justice, peacemaking circle practices out here in King County, where I live, are being used in schools, I believe, as well as in the juvenile justice system. And it's a really important way of bringing community into concept. Mary, we're going to hit a break in about 30 seconds. Can you give us a quick, your quick definition of restorative justice? Yeah, it's community-based safety is what it is. It brings people together. To Helping restore communities to functionality, yes. essentially. Exactly. Restoring relationships, uh-huh. so many of which have been absolutely broken and leaves so many of us unaccountable to each other. So it's a way of, of bringing uh, people together again. There's many practices, very specific ways to do it, mm-hmm. uh, that restore relationships and therefore restore safety to yeah. our communities. I, it's all about relationships. I, you know, and this is my point, that inequality makes people crazy. It, make, it tears apart social trust. And I'm going to have to do a deep dive on restorative justice now, Mary. Thank you very much for that. I've heard the phrase many times. I've never really uh, dug into it, and, and I, I need to. Thank you, Mary. Kadia, am I saying that right, in San Francisco? Yep, that's correct. Hey, Kadia, what's um, up? I just wanted to add on, because I work, I'm a nurse practitioner, I work in community health. I like a lot of the points that uh, other callers have made, and also specifically with the policy one. A lot of these decisions that are made for unhoused um, individuals, they're not even a part of the process, so I think, mm. like, on top of that, we should start training, like they should have a say in what type of resources should be given and how they should be allocated as well. I just wanted to like kind of throw that out there because there's a lot of draconian rules that come to play when you're staying at a hotel or like in Oakland, we have a lot of RV encampments. It's like if you leave for a day, you can't come back for the next three days. So I just wanted to like point out that we dehumanize individuals in this situation and unhoused situations and often don't even ask for their input and it's actually kind of amazing how well they organize themselves within their own communities so there is hierarchy there's method to the proverbial madness and i think like often people assume that everybody is just a drug addict or has mental health issues and that's not always the case and i just kind of wanted to throw that out there. You did a brilliant job of that. And I think that on the let's do something spectrum, you've got the savior complex on one hand and the conservatives with the, well, we've, if we have to do this, we have to make it painful for people on the other hand. Right. And, and neither one of those actually says, let's go to the people themselves who need the help and ask them what they need. Yeah, very rarely it happens. And the meetings where those do occur, it's, they're usually not the, I guess, more important ones. And it's just like simple things like they won't change basic fire codes so that or even provide like fire extinguishers for encampments because like those are like things like it's always like these weird red tape things that they'll like get rid of the whole encampment versus giving them things to make the encampment safer. Yeah. So brilliant. I really appreciate this conversation. (laughs) Thank you. Well, and and I appreciate your contribution to it. Thank you so much. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Paul, what's on your mind? Yeah, Tom, you know, I just read recently, or reread, I should say, Aristotle's complete works, uh, including the politics. And Yikes. What he describes in there in terms of the types of things, types of models of politics and the dysfunctions that can be sociological, you know, demographic, geographic, economic, about all of them are happening in the United States right now. And he did say, I'll quote this, he says, poverty is the parent of crime and revolution. So this supports your notion that if you're going to have crime and revolution, 
the crime is going to be to do what? To get something from, or, and the revolution is to get something from somebody who already has it. And this is why the Republicans are desperately trying to p- pass these voter obstructions uh, in all these states is because they know that, number one, the ultra-rich have stolen $30 trillion out of the economy, which is not circulating. That money's not circulating. That's the whole. That's our $30 trillion debt. And that's the whole that our, we have a junk food economy. And that money, that $30 trillion is, is in their coffers. It's not circulating. That would be the solution. By the way, in King County, Washington, where Seattle is, there's 100,000 homeless people. About 25,000 have applied for assistance, but they know there is four times that much. And the right-wingers who say, oh, these homeless who don't want to abide by the rules won't go to the shelters. Well, I asked somebody, what, how, many, how many beds are there in the shelters? And she told me about five to 7,000. So no matter what you say, there aren't even enough shelter beds to accommodate, you know, 5% of them, even if these people wanted to play by the rules, you know. And right. and, and, uh, and then you get packed it, it, in it, it, like it, it, a barracks and you lose all sense of privacy where, and, and, right. and a lot of your sense of safety, whereas at least in a little tent city, you can zip close your tent and have, have some semblance of privacy. I totally get it. Paul, I want to get one last caller in here. Janet in Mount Vernon, Washington. <laughs> And it's an honor to follow Paul Woodenville because he's one of my heroes from your show. Also, I just want to say that I have a friend that worked in mental health as a mental health professional for many years, starting in the 70s. And she said that after Reagan was elected, it was almost immediate. The cuts that came. So it was as if they opened the hospital doors and said, there you go. We have a, actually have a mental health facility in our town. And it's, it's you know, dilapidated and has been shut down for you know, most of it for many years. So yeah. there you go. Got it. Janet, thank you. And there we are. Let's do something about this. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. As our old buddy Barack Obama used to say, it requires all of us. So get out there, get active, tag your it. Reach out to somebody today. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.